13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, thank you so much for reading, Tim. Um, let me add my warm welcome to you all this lunchtime. I would say it was a glorious lunchtime, but the weather is absolutely shocking, isn't it, today? If we haven't met before, I'd love to um, meet you at the end. Do, do come and see me if you've got any questions. I'd love to chat. Well, we've got two important issues that we're going to be discussing uh, this lunchtime. Identity and purpose. Identity and purpose. So let me ask... Who are we and why are we here? Who are we and why are we here? Well, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? And I imagine it's a question that the vast majority of us may have asked ourselves at some stage in our, in our lives. Perhaps we construct our identity by the roles and the accomplishments of our CV. We might identify ourselves by our heritage or the color of our skin by our careers, or the schools we've been to, or by our marital status, or our parental roles. Perhaps we define who we are and why we're here by our political leanings, or by the objects of our sexual desires. Maybe we consider ourselves to be summed up in a Myers-Briggs category. I'm E-N-F-J. Uh, any, any others here? Oh, very okay, so we've got one, at least. Um, <laughs> I'm told it's very rare. Um, our se- <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a good thing. Um, our sense of self might be based on money, or our lack of it, on achievements or failures, on the approval of others or, our, or, or their rejection, on our self-esteem or self-hatred. Perhaps we think that our sins define us, being angry, being an addict, or being an anxious people pleaser. Perhaps afflictions define us, like disability, divorce, or disease. Perhaps even our identity and purpose as a Christian might be anchored in something like our Bible knowledge, or our sharpness, or the name of the church in which we belong. And perhaps even in the last five years or so, there's been this increasing pressure to identify ourselves in a particular way that affects our job security and our social status. Identity and purpose has never been more on the agenda than it is now, whether you're in primary school or if you're at the peak of your career. And so perhaps now, more than ever before, We're in need of real clarity about our identity and our purpose. 
So who are we and why are we here? Well, in our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, we're going to find out what our ultimate purpose is and what our ultimate um, identity is. And we're going to find out, I find that it will surpass, actually, anything that we've mentioned just before. And our passage today builds on the last few weeks of, as Jesus has been proclaiming the nearness of the kingdoms of heaven, the kingdoms of, of heavens in chapter 4. He's called his first disciples to follow him, promising to make them fishers of people. And he's begun a ministry of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in Galilee and attracting huge crowds along the way. And now he's begun his teaching, he's teaching his disciples in the sight and hearing of the crowds, beginning with the Beatitudes, which we, we looked at last week. And here's where we saw the dis- description of truly wise people who are living the best possible life. But right at the end of last week's passage, the final two verses, Jesus applies this teaching directly to the disciples in front of him. In verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you. And Jesus continues his direct address in our passage today. So who are we? And why are we here? Well, it's a two-part question, and Jesus gives us a two-part answer in our passage today. And so there are two points this lunchtime, and they're outlined on on the handout that you were given out um, at the door. So let's begin with with our first point, which deals with who we are. Point one, you are the salt of the earth, so don't lose it. Read me from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, being described as the salt of the earth is an interesting phrase, isn't it? When I think of salt, I think of seasoning, I think of icy roads, I think of chips, I think of celebrity steak chefs with elaborate sprinkle postures. But what does Jesus mean when he describes his disciples as the salt of the earth? Because salt's talked a lot. It's talked about a lot in the Bible, isn't it? I think there are around 40 different references, one to do with flavoring, one to do with healing, and many others. And because we use salt in our everyday lives, I guess it's easy to jump to conclusions, isn't it? But rather than download our own particular ideas, let's find out what the Bible says about it. And I've jotted down a couple of um, Old Testament references on your handout. But I found by far the most convincing use of salt in the Old Testament is when God makes promises and commitments to his people in what is called a covenant relationship. So back in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, the enduring and permanent relationship that the Lord established with David and his descendants was called a covenant of salt. The Old Testament background of salt is so closely associated with God's enduring and permanent covenant commitment to his people. But the big question left hanging at the end of the Old Testament was what's happened to this supposedly enduring and permanent covenant of salt with David? Well, right at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, remember we we had that genealogy where we we were taken from Abraham to Zerubbabel. Well, this genealogy reminds us 
of this, of this covenant soul. But it points to Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Now, finding out who we are and where we've come from has never been so popular, especially with ancestry kind of DNA tests, those kits flying off the virtual shelves. It's amazing, isn't it, that with just a simple kind of saliva sample of, or, or a cheek swab, we can learn so much about our ancestry, so much about our identity. Now, I was at a wedding a few months ago, and uh, I got speaking to somebody, and um, it turns out that she's actually completed uh, one of these ancestry uh, DNA tests. And she was so thrilled and surprised about the multicultured nature of her family tree. And she, she said it helped her understand so much about who she was. But here in Matthew chapter 5, our heritage, our identity is so much more. Because here, Jesus is addressing his disciples as those who have a new relationship with God, a new covenant. And he looks them in the eye and he says, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, you are the true covenant people. God has been faithful to his covenant with David. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And it continues with you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Who are we? Well, if you're a disciple here of Jesus this lunchtime, you have a new identity being sought. The blessings of the covenant are yours. And in you, the covenant endures. But I guess having the ultimate identity goes hand in hand with having the ultimate warning because that's how Jesus ends verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon under people's feet. Now I know, and so did Jesus, that salt cannot lose its saltiness technically. If salt is washed out, it becomes a saline solution. So it doesn't actually lose its saltiness. But it can become so diluted with salt, sand and, uh, or earth or grit, that it's no longer fit for purpose. It's only fit for the landfill. And so the unique, privileged, covenant people are faced with a real warning in verse 13. Now, do you know there was a time that um, Mahatma, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi was seriously considering the Christian faith. Um, Christianity seemed to be the, uh, a real solution to the caste system um, that divided people in India. He seemed to be really compelled by Jesus. And the faith in which he, he didn't know much about suddenly became perhaps the very solution India needed. So one Sunday, he decided to investigate it, and he took what he'd read in the Gospels seriously, and he arrived at church. But when he arrived at church, he was refused entry. The ushers said that he should worship with his own people instead. Now, Gandhi left. He never came back. But he said this, if Christians have caste differences also, well, I might as well have remain a Hindu because I understand that caste system. Now, these ushers were no different from the world around them. 
tasteless salt, useless, worthless. Lose your saltiness and you end up blending with the world. Lose your saltiness and we're not fit for anything except to be thrown out and tramped underfoot. But again, Jesus says right at the start of the verse, you are the salt of the earth. The blessings of the covenant are yours. You are the true covenant people. You are the salt of the earth, so don't lose it. Well, real clarity on who we are is going to affect how we see ourselves, isn't it? And, and why we think we're here. So point one, your ultimate identity, who you are as disciples of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, so don't lose it. And now your ultimate purpose, why you're here as disciples of Jesus. So point two, you are the light of the world, so don't hide it. Let me read from verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, light is illuminating and light brings hope to the world. So far in Matthew, we've seen people of this world dwell in darkness, in the shadow of death. So light, we see, is essential. And the words light and world together are drenched with references from the Old Testament. In fact, if you were to play the word association game, Codenames, that's a game where two teams compete against one another, and each team has, a, has one player um, who, um, who, who gives one particular clue, um, and they, you can point to multiple words in the game. Let's call it Old Testament Codenames. So now imagine, imagine you're the one giving the clues. You had about 25 cards laid out in front of you, and the following four words popped up. Light, world, city, and hill. And you've got to come up with one word to link those four words. Well, then you'd almost certainly win by saying the word Isaiah. I'm not sure they do that addition, but um, Isaiah is, is the word that connects these particular words together. Verse 14 again. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. This verse is an allusion to the expectation of the prophets that from God's people, the light of salvation will come to flood the whole world. For example, the servant of Isaiah 49 is told, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And also, cities set on a hill really does echo Zion, doesn't it? In, in Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4. The mountain to which all the nations will come, streaming to its light. And these are all-time prophecies which involve God's great plan, going global as he makes his name known to the ends of the earth. His great plan that he gave his chosen people, Israel. And now Jesus looks to his disciples. He looks them in the eye and says, you are the light of the world. 
this huge prophetic expectation that light will flood to every corner of creation is going to be fulfilled in each and every one of you. This is our unique purpose in the world, to speak of the goodness of God and to be godly in our conduct, inwardly charged with Jesus' light and now outwardly shining light. Now, some of you will know on Tuesday mornings, we have this younger work, city workers prayer meeting here at St. Helens. A few weeks ago, um, a younger city worker was giving an update on um, his, his, um, their particular ministry in the workplace. Um, and they were a little bit disheartened that no one was interested in, in finding, more, um, about, finding out more about Jesus. But the truth of the matter is that this city worker is the, the light in their workplace. They are, they are the lit-up city on a hill. This city worker is, distinct, is distinctive in their workplace and able to carry out their ultimate purpose because of their ultimate identity. And the same can be said for each and every one of us in our workplaces. Because we've experienced mercy, we'll be merciful to others. Because we've experienced peace, we'll, we'll make peace with others. We've been satisfied with his righteousness, so we'll become righteous. And if this light is so impactful, then it makes no sense whatsoever to hide it. Let's read again from verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. I want you to imagine grand designs. And at the end of the program, when Kevin McLeod actually comes to look at the completed project. And at the big reveal, you, end up, you actually can't see anything. And um, all the lamps of this newly designed room have been stuffed away in the cupboard. So there's no light to be seen. So it's absolutely unthinkable for you to put a switched-on lamp in a cupboard, especially with today's energy prices. You are the light of the world, so don't hide it. If being light is the disciples' vocation, function, and purpose in this world, then it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to hide it. Lights and lamps are not for hiding, but for putting on a stand to shine brightly. Jesus says, likewise, you should let your light shine before others. Read me from verse 16 again. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. See, the means by which the light shines is through certain good deeds. But note carefully the purpose of these. They're not done to establish a relationship with Jesus or the Father. That is a given. They're done to bring glory to the Father in heaven. And in the same way that you know um, a super bright torch is evidence of fresh batteries, you can also know that someone who has such a relationship will be part of the kingdom. What we're involved with is none other than the goal of humanity. Now, back in Genesis, right at the start of the Bible, the purpose the very essence of humanity was to fill the earth with the glory of God, to speak of God's glory. 
We all want identity and purpose in life, don't we? Well, here is the ultimate purpose, the ultimate ancestry DNA test. This is the purpose of life. And if you're a visitor here today, um, or here for the first time, or, or you're looking for identity and purpose, let me say you are very welcome here. It's great to see you. Do come and chat to me at the end if you've got any questions. But let me say, hand on heart, that we'll never understand our place in the world or what we're meant to be unless we realize that we were made to give glory to our Creator. So you've come to the right place. We'd love you to, to investigate Jesus for yourself because you need him. But if you'd call yourself a Christian, Jesus wants you to know this lunchtime that there is nothing more purposeful or noble than the role of shining light in the darkness of the world to the glory of our Father. There's nothing greater than that. It means you're never more human than when you're praising God. You're never more human than when you have your Bible open. You're never more human than when you're on your knees in prayer. Now imagine with me, you're working late in the office and there's been a complete blackout. All the lights are suddenly shut down and you're on the top floor and you're looking out. You're looking out of the window onto the city, but it's completely pitch black outside. You can't see anything, but you can hear your colleagues stumbling around trying to find a light. You gaze outside for a while and you see in the corner of your eye a flicker of light. It's across the road from, it's across the road from you. And then another light pops up. And then from a different building, and then another light pops up again. And then before you know it, there are multiple lights shining in the city. They're right at the heart of each, and each of these offices. And it's reminding you that you're not alone. You're not the only light in the city. Together, you are the light of the world. All of you Christians in the city, without you guys, this city will remain in darkness. So proclaiming truth, proclaiming the light, proclaiming the glories of, the, of your Father in heaven to the world around through word and deed is absolutely necessary. It is essential acting in a godly way, with integrity, being salt and light, is what this city needs. So don't lose it and don't hide it. Let's pray. We pray, our Father, that you would make each and every one of us individually and corporately more and more to be salt and the light of the world. We pray that this would be uh, the case in our families, in our offices, amongst our colleagues, and we ask that we, we, we seek to live more like Jesus, that many would give you glory and turn in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.